Well, hello. Uh, this was not what I was expecting or hoping for this morning or today. Um, here I am in Savannah with our flight canceled today, flying home tomorrow. Hopefully, perhaps during the sermon, uh, I'll arrive there or soon after. Uh, but uh, here's, here's, I guess, one benefit of technology that I can record the sermon and we can think about this passage together. I would encourage you to have a Bible open, either one of the Pew Bibles or your own Bible or on a, on a Bible app to follow along in Luke 14 today. Or you could uh, use, if you have the Bible, the actual Bible app on your phone or device, if you go to events, uh, you'll see our church come up and the order of services in there. And I've uh, added uh, the quotes from today's sermon into that order of service if you want to use that. Let me pray and then we'll think about the passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity today to think about this particular passage as we continue in our series on Meals with Jesus. We pray that it would be encouraging, instructive, helpful, that it might correct thoughts that need to be corrected, uh, but that all of us, whatever uh, point we are at in our journey of faith, would be helped by our time together in your word today, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were to ask your friends this week who aren't Christians, how would you describe Jesus? Uh, what kind of words would they use? Perhaps teacher, model, example? My, my guess is that none of them would say Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. In fact, they would be quite surprised if you told them that that was one of the main accusations thrown at Jesus by his opponents. The reason Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard was because from what we're told in the Gospels, Jesus went to a lot of dinner parties. And I mean a lot. We're halfway through our current sermon series called Meals with Jesus. Jesus goes to a lot of dinner parties. But what we've observed already through this series is that it's, it's not because he had nothing better to do. Jesus goes to parties because it's a picture of the kingdom that he's ushering in. Doug Webster, in his book, Table Grace, puts it like this, quote, Jesus showed us that a simple meal is one of the best places to begin to understand and practice true spirituality. In the Gospels, we discover that he, is, he invited more people to lunch than he did to the synagogue. It may well be that conversation around a simple meal means more to the Lord than all the hype we generate in busy churches. But today we come to another of these meals with Jesus. What's perhaps surprising is that of the four meals we've now looked at, this is the second at the home of a Pharisee. It's actually the third time in Luke's gospel that Jesus is eating at the home of a Pharisee. Because remember, the Pharisees were Jesus' biggest critics. They were the ones at the front of the picket lines accusing Jesus of being a glutton and drunkard, spitting out the accusation that he was a, a friend of sinners. But interestingly, Jesus doesn't avoid them. He uses their provocations to engage with them. And that's what Jesus does here at the home of this prominent Pharisee on the Sabbath. We're going to focus really on the second half of the passage and particularly on the parable of the great banquet, because here's what I want us to see that Luke is saying Today, here's our sermon in a sentence that Jesus' future banquet guests, his party guests, are those who accept his invitation and then pass it on to others. 
We'll think about that by looking first at the catalyst for this parable of the great banquet and then the commands that come out of the parable. The catalyst and then the commands. Jesus' future banquet guests are those who accept his invitation and then pass it on to others. So first, the catalyst for the parable. Look at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. On face value, doesn't that sound like a very godly statement? You know, if this had been a Bible study and we'd been there, you and I would probably have asked whoever had said this to repeat it so we could write it down in our notebooks, saying to one another, oh, that's good, you know, turning to the person beside us as we nod our heads. The, the problem is that Jesus didn't think it particularly good at all, which is why he tells the parable. But before we look at the parable, look with me at what has led up to this guest at the banquet making such a statement. As I mentioned, Jesus is at the home of a ruler of, a, of the Pharisees for a meal. But in verse one, we're told he's under surveillance by those who are there with him. And immediately a situation arises. Look at verses two to six. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? They could not reply to these things. It's not completely clear, but but I think this was a setup. Here's a guy who's in severe pain from the disease of dropsy, but the Pharisees have dragged him to the banquet to try to trap Jesus on the question of healing on the Sabbath. So what does Jesus do? He asks the Pharisees two questions, neither of which they're willing to answer because the answer would defeat their purposes here. And so Jesus heals the man. Scoreboard, Jesus won, Pharisees zero. And Luke then tells us that Jesus noticed how the guests at the meal were jostling for the best seats at the table. You can perhaps picture an airplane on which there are no reserved seats. I think this is more common with low-cost European airlines than perhaps here. But if you've ever been on one of those flights and seen the arging and barging, you'll you'll have some idea of what's going on here. So Jesus tells a parable. I'll not get into the parable quite yet, but the application point is plain to see. Jesus states it in verse 11. For, who, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And look then at what Jesus says next. Verses 12 to 14. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. N.T. Wright mentions that many years ago he preached on this passage, emphasizing Jesus' extraordinary instructions here not to invite friends, relatives, and neighbors to dinner, but to invite the poor, the disabled. However, in the course of the next week, his wife and he received dinner invitations from no fewer than uh, three people who were in church that day. 
Wright said he wasn't sure whether he and his wife were being categorized as the poor or the disabled. But is Jesus saying here that it's bad to be inviting to friends and family? I, I don't think that's his point. It'd be quite out of keeping with his teaching elsewhere. He is, however, warning that there's a type of generosity which is really only this worldly self-interest. It's the common attitude of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. And Jesus says that's the opposite of what my kingdom is about. I want you to show hospitality to everyone, regardless of whether they can reciprocate or not. So put on a party for the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, those with dropsy, and you'll be blessed when you do so. And it's at that point that our Pharisee friend pipes up with his deeply sounding, deeply pious sounding pronouncement. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You might think that the statement was an affirmation of what Jesus had just said, that all, including the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, would be blessed as they shared in the messianic future banquet predicted by the prophets. Here's how the prophet Isaiah, for example, spoke of that future banquet in Isaiah 25, verse 6, that on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. All peoples. But by Jesus' day, that wasn't a popular view among many. One translation of the Old Testament around at the time of Jesus called the Targum changed Isaiah 25 to read that the Gentiles would be overcome by plagues at this banquet. The Dead Sea Scrolls, written by the Qumran community, which was a sect of pious Jews, included a section on the Messianic banquet which stated that no one can attend the banquet who is, quote, smitten in his flesh, or paralyzed in his feet or hands or lame or blind or deaf or dumb. And if those views were representative of the time, then the Pharisee statement here, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, really meant blessed are we, the clean ones, the true ones who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. The Pharisee wanted his statement in verse 15 to sound inclusive, but it is actually intended to exclude people not like him. And Jesus sees that. He sees right through the Pharisee statement. And his problem is with the Pharisee's categories. The Pharisee, like his colleagues, is working off the old boundaries of clean and unclean, ritually righteous and unrighteous. So Jesus tells a parable in which the dividing line between those who eat at the feast and those who don't eat at the feast depends on each of us heeding the first implicit command of the parable, which is simply accept the invitation to the banquet. Accept the invitation. Look at verses 16 to 20. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. 
me just explain the context here for a moment. In a traditional Middle Eastern village, if someone decided to host a banquet, he would send out invitations to his friends to see who was available. And on the basis of the number of positive RSVPs, the host would then decide how much food he would need to have prepared. The day of the banquet, the animals or fowl would be butchered, the banquet prepared. And then when everything was ready, the master would send his servant out again around the village with the summons, please come, everything is ready. You want a contemporary parallel. Imagine you've invited some friends around for a dinner party. They've all arrived. They're sitting having drinks in your living room. You or your spouse then come in from the, the kitchen to say that the, the meal is ready and, and to invite the guests to take their places. They, however, proceed to offer excuses and to head for the door. One says, well, I, I need to mow the lawn before it gets completely dark. Second says, I, I have to feed my cat. So it said that there are bills on my desk waiting to be paid, whereupon all three head for the front door. That's pretty much what happens here in Jesus' parable. Ken Kenneth Bailey, in his excellent book on the parables, explains that none of the excuses given here would have been legitimate in that culture. They were all pathetic, weak excuses. The invitation to the banquet had been extended, but had been rejected. So how does the host? React. Look at verses 21 to 23. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the servant said, master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. Because the initial invitations had been spurned, the host sends his servant out to invite others to come to the banquet instead. And look who's invited, the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame, just the people that many in Jesus' day said had no place at the messianic future banquet. But then the servant comes back and he tells the host there's still room. So the host sends the servant out again beyond the immediate streets of the village to find other guests. The host says, compel people to come in. Perhaps sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? It sounds like making someone do something against their will. But, but that completely misses Jesus' point. The host in the parable knew exactly what the reaction of strangers on the highways and byways would be. The, the stranger, an outsider, someone with no social status whatsoever would have had a very hard time believing he was really invited and wanted at a banquet of a prominent person. Such grace would seem, well, unbelievable. The stranger would need some convincing that he or she really was invited or wanted. And so the host was therefore saying, when they resist, and I know they will, grab them by the hand and drag them here if you have to. Jesus' point in his immediate context was this. The parable was announcing that the timetable for the invitations to this future messianic banquet has been kicked forward. Jesus was saying that the kingdom had arrived with his own coming and he's already sending out the invitations. However, the invitations to the religious Jewish people were being rejected. So he'd sent the invitations out to the Jewish people considered outcasts, the sick, the poor. And they'd said yes. 
but there was still room. So the invitations went out to the Gentiles. And as hard as they might find the invitation to be true, Jesus says, I really want you there. So how does all this apply to us? It means that there's no one amongst us this morning in a category of persons to whom Jesus' invitation is not also extended. It means that whoever you are and whatever your past, you've been invited to. Jesus has sent people out into the highways and hedges of Kennett Square, of Chester County, of Delaware, to invite you to this banquet. The fact that you're here today or watching online today is because he wants you to hear the invitation, perhaps for the first time or perhaps again. And there may be some of us here today who honestly, genuinely are saying to ourselves, but there must be some mistake. He must have forgotten what I've done. He's forgetting that incident in my past. He's not remembering the kind of person that I've been throughout my life. And Jesus says, oh, no, I do. I know, I know. But this banquet is for people just like you. Remember, Jesus says what I said, he who humbles himself will be exalted. I have a place at the banquet table for you. So please, won't you come? Now, how is that possible? How can Jesus invite us to the banquet, this future heavenly messianic banquet, regardless of our past or our resources? And the simple answer is because he's the host. And as the host, he's covering the cost of this banquet. So it's up to him who gets invited. The thing is, he couldn't just randomly say, okay, well, your past doesn't matter. Your sin doesn't matter because it actually it does matter at a fundamental level. It actually does exclude you and me from the banquet. But this host did something that only he could do. He alone could do it because of who he is. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 verses 6 to 11 of what Jesus the host did. Paul writes, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself from heaven to earth to death on a cross so that you and I could go to the banquet. He became poor so that we could become rich. He took our spiritual sickness so that we can be healthy. He took our blindness so that we can see. He thirsted on the cross so that we can drink at the table. But when Jesus humbled himself, what did God then do? He exalted Jesus to the highest place, to the head of the banquet table, where he welcomes all who respond positively to the invitation. An invitation of sheer grace. But Jesus says at the end of this parable, speaking now to everyone at that dinner party, verse 24, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Those who return the invitation of Jesus with excuses have no place at the table. Jesus was saying to our Pharisee friend and the others there, 
you're invited too, but so far you've declined the invitation. I wonder, would he say that to any of us? Jesus says, if you haven't, please accept the invitation. But we need to see one other thing before we finish here. There, there's something here that's actually similar to what happened in Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 that Jeremy preached on last week. Do you remember how Jesus fed the 5,000? That he actually didn't do it himself. He worked through his disciples. He included them in his mission. Well, here, how do the invitations get distributed in the parable? It's not the host himself who takes them out. It's the servant. Look again at verse 22. The servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. Here was a servant so caught up by the generosity and grace of his master that his own heart becomes generous and gracious. Jesus is indicating that we're not just to accept the invitation, but to pass on the invitation. And I would suggest that's one clear way that you'll know if you've understood this gospel of grace. That once you understand that you're on the guest list for Jesus's banquet, not because of any merit of your own, but only because of his grace, you'll do everything that you can to invite others to the banquet as well. Here again is how N.T. Wright puts it. He says it isn't enough to say that we ourselves are the people dragged in from the country lanes to our surprise to enjoy God's party? That may be true, but party guests are then expected to become party hosts in their turn. What does that look like? It's going to mean an outward looking focus. It's going to mean grace and humility and boldness. But let me bring us back to our theme verse from Luke 7 in the series that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus came teaching about the feast of the kingdom, but in the process, he came feasting in the kingdom. There's perhaps no better way for us to point to this future feast than through what we might call strategic missional present feasting. There's no better place for us to become a, a better friend of neighbors, co-workers and others than at the table dining table, restaurant table, that when you share a meal with someone as an equal, not as a charity case, but as a true companion, walls come down, conversations flow, and over time we have opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. There's even something, just as a sidebar here, there's even something to learn from Jesus eating and drinking and how we endeavor to heal the deep divides that exist in our society right now. Greg Thompson is a name that some of you will know. Greg is currently working with Square Roots Collective here in Kennet on an initiative called Voices Underground to highlight and celebrate the stories of the Underground Railroad in Chester County. Greg also writes an online column called The Welcome Table, which I would commend to you. His most recent column actually begins with a quote from our passage in Luke 14 today. But in, in the first column he wrote in this series, he said this, our basic conviction is this, we are made for communion, for table fellowship with one another. And while the work of hospitality cannot do everything that must be done for our healing, nothing of substance can in the end be done without it. We are all bound to the table and our work in a fundamentally inhospitable moment whose discourse seems hell-bent 
on not just deepening, but also validating our estrangement. Our work is to contend for the convivial imagination, to insist on the moral meaning and social power of the shared table and the race glass, end quote. This table fellowship I'm encouraging us to partake of it is not a reference to fancy dinner parties. There's nothing wrong with those, of course, but if that's what we think this is all about, we're rarely, we're rarely going to do it. I'm suggesting that we get into the habit of inviting people to eat with us in the run-of-the-mill flow of life, over lunch, on a particular evening, whatever you're eating that night, that you invite someone to join you. Or if you don't want to host, then get invited to someone else's home. That seems to be how Jesus often did it. Be so caught up by the grace of the banquet host Jesus that you long to extend that grace as you feast with others. Closing story, Jim Peterson in his book, Living Proof, tells the story of his friend Mario, with whom he had studied the Bible for four years before Mario became a Christian. And through those studies, Peterson discovered that Mario was a Marxist intellectual who had read all the leading Western philosophers. A couple of years after his conversion, Jim and Mario were reminiscing. Mario asked, do, do you know what it really was that made me decide to become a Christian? Peterson thought of all their Bible studies and philosophical discussions. But Mario's reply didn't touch on those talks. He said, remember that first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. And as I sat there observing you, your wife and your children and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiance? And when I realized that the answer was never, I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival, end quote. And you and I perhaps hear that and sigh. We think to ourselves, you know, I, I wish my home was such a place of harmony and gospel grace that visitors might see me and our, my family, if I have one, and want to become Christians. We think, yeah, right, like, like that's going to happen. But you know what? Peterson remembered that occasion. He remembered his children behaving badly that night and his frustration at having to correct them in front of Mario. But still, Mario saw the grace of God binding that family together. And so Peterson concluded, quote, our family was unaware of its influence on Mario. God had done this work through our family without our knowing it. We tend to see the weaknesses, Peterson continues, and incongruities in our lives. And our reaction is to recoil at the thought of letting outsiders get close enough to see us as we really are. But if our assessment is accurate, it is my observation that any Christian who is sincerely seeking to walk with God, in spite of all his or her flaws, is reflecting something of Christ. End quote. Friends, Jesus banquet guests, future banquet guests, party guests, are those who accept his invitation and then pass it on to others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this invitation to your future banquet and for the sense in which we can already begin to enjoy that fellowship with you and with others. We pray that if any of us have not yet accepted that invitation, that we would do so today. And for those of us who have, that you would give us a, a renewed grace and humility and boldness to extend the invitation to others. 
that around our tables, whether in our homes, in restaurants, wherever it is, that you might be giving us an opportunity to model the one who came eating and drinking and modeling the kingdom. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.